welcome. My, my text or my title, as, as I mentioned, is The God of the Impossible. My text is the Gospel of Mark. There it is, chapter 10, verses 23 to 31, the New King James. You know, I always look to an anointing of God from, and I use Psalm 1914. Uh, I can't remember when I didn't call to that psalm for my sermons, and I've been preaching a long, long time. But essentially, I just want to be sure that what I say is the total representation of the word of God. And so I pray that he will anoint my words, which are his thoughts, because I don't want to interject my own thoughts, but to serve the word of God as I should, as a minister of the gospel. So dear Lord, this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my salvation. Amen? You know, I remember... Long-term memory is good. Short-term memory is a challenge. But I remember being in, in a high school classroom back in the 60s. And I remember our teacher was explaining about some of the future technology that we would probably get to enjoy one day as adults. He told us that one day there would be a device in our cars that would inform us as to our exact location and could then provide detailed instructions on how to get to our destination. I got to tell you, we were blown away. He went on to explain how a satellite from outer space would be able to know exactly where you were and then be able to communicate to a device and say, turn left in one mile and your destination should be on the right. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy is nuts. That's crazy talk. That's fantasy. I mean, that would be like having a telephone without a cord or a TV without any knobs to turn to the three available stations that we had. It just sounded ridiculous. It couldn't happen. Impossible. Well, I was wrong. We now have the greatest invention in the history of mankind, the TV remote. We have access to these satellites in outer space that can navigate us precisely through GPS on our wireless, mobile phones. You know, I've been reminded many times that what's impossible for me to conceive or create doesn't automatically make it impossible for everyone to conceive or create. You know, my limitations don't apply universally. They don't apply to everyone. And it's been said, never interrupt someone doing what you said couldn't be done. You know, it's one of the things that we have seen Jesus teach the disciples again and again is that God has no limitations. You know, the God of creation is the God of the impossible. Whether it be through a loaf of bread that multiplies or a walk on a raging sea, or restoring sight to a blind man, or bringing the dead back to life, Jesus gave us overwhelming evidence that human limitations do not apply to Almighty God. And while there are many things which are impossible for people, with God, nothing is impossible. And Jesus teaches on that same subject in our text this morning. 
And many of you already know most or all of what Jesus has said is impossible. For example, Jesus said, it's impossible for a rich person to go to heaven. How does that hit you? Maybe you're thinking, this is one time in my life that I am glad that I am not rich. Well, let's make sure we understand what Jesus, God in the flesh, is teaching us here in our text, Mark 10, verses 23 to 31, which read, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. For many who are first will be last and the last first. So first in your outline, consider the stunning statement. Again, verse 23 states, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now let me remind you of the context. A rich young ruler had just asked Jesus what he needed to do to receive eternal life. And Jesus knew his God was gold and his creed was greed. And Jesus hit him right where it hurt, in the billfold. Jesus said, go sell all your stuff. Give it to the poor and follow me. In other words, Show your remorse and repentance of making your stuff your savior and of making your gold your God by getting rid of it. Get rid of your idol of money and come and give yourself to me, the son of God. Jesus was telling this young ruler the way to have eternal life was to simply repent and believe. You know, Jesus was simply repeating what he had declared all the way back to chapter 1, verse 15, when he stated, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What did this rich young ruler do? He refused. He walked away, convicted and sorrowful, but not enough to change. And that's where we pick it up this morning. Jesus watches the rich young ruler walk away from the only way to have eternal life. And Jesus says, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. You know, because most of us have read the New Testament a few times, this statement that Jesus makes really doesn't shock us today. We've heard the warnings of health and wealth many times. But first, let us consider the letter A in your outline, and that is 
that rich people tend to have a false sense of security. 1 Timothy 6.17 states, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Do you know what real financial prosperity is? Financial prosperity is having all you need to do all God wants you to do. Some have more because God wants them to do more. And some have less because God wants them to do less. But true financial, true financial prosperity is having all you need to do all that God calls you to do. Now, do you know why most of us want more money? More money than we have right now? Because we want to feel more secure. We want to feel in control. And that's what the Bible calls the deceitfulness of riches. See, wealth can seduce you into thinking that you would be more secure and more in control than you really are. Riches provide a false sense of security that makes radical trust in God difficult. Now, let me put a little caveat in here. The vast majority of us in this room have more than we need. We may not have all we want, but we have all that we need. And why do you think God gives us or allows us to have more than we need? It's not your need that he has in mind. Why do you think God gives us or allows us to have more than we really need? It's not your need that he's concerned with. He's allowing you the privilege of being a conduit through which he will provide for others. He's giving you the opportunity to humbly serve those whom he humbly died for. Now, please, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's wrong to be rich. It's not. The Bible does not say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not what's in your hand, it's about what's in your heart. God does not have a problem with people having money, but he does have a problem with money having people. Now consider the letter B in your outline, and that is, rich people tend to be bound to this world. You know, rich people tend to spend their lives with their heads down working rather than with their eyes up, worshiping. They have their eyes fixed on the temporal rather than the eternal. I just recently had to adjust my glasses to fix my problem of nearsightedness. Well, Gath says that the problem most of those who are rich isn't that they're farsighted or nearsighted, but that they are short-sighted. All they can see, all they can think about, all that they work for is the here and now. And Jesus said in Matthew 6.17, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, your treasure and your heart are inseparable. Your treasure represents your investment. What you invest in in your life here the most is what you love the most. And Jesus said, because the rich tend to invest their life in this world, that's where their love is. That's where they want to be. Rich people tend not to build God's kingdom because they're busy building their own. I love the story about a child playing with a coin purse. And the hysterical mom calls her husband and she says, 
Johnny swallowed a nickel and started choking. I turned him upside down and started shaking him, and out popped two dimes. What should I do? And the dad said, keep feeding him nickels. <laughs> now, we've heard these warnings of Scripture so often we're not caught off guard when Jesus says it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. But I want you to notice what Mark says is the reaction of the disciples. That's annotated in verse 24, which states, And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were shocked. They were astonished. They were overwhelmingly surprised that Jesus said, It's enormously difficult for rich to be in God's kingdom. And just in case they knew that they had not heard wrong, Jesus repeated it. He said, it is hard for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, number two, consider the impossible illustration. In verse 25, Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Listen, did you know that Jesus was partial to camel jokes? One time he used a pun to describe the Pharisees. He said, you guys strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That's the English translation. To understand this, you have to understand that the Aramaic word for gnat is galma, G-A-L-N-A. And the word for cam camel is gamla, G-A-M. L-A. It's a play on words. Jesus said, you strain out the gamas but swallow the gamlas. Get it? You guys don't understand Jewish humor. It's like the cross-site school teacher who got fired because she couldn't keep her pupils straight. Ah. Some life in response. You're catching on. You know, one of Jesus' favorite ways to make a memorable point was to combine hyperbole with humor. That's what he does here. He uses the largest animal in Israel, a camel, and the smallest man-made opening in Israel, the eye of a needle. This is supposed to be so preposterous that it's humorous. Some people have tried to explain this away by saying the eye of a needle was a small door made for people and a camel could squeeze through, but it's really difficult. The only thing wrong with that is that it's wrong. The Greek word used for needle in both Matthew and Mark refers to a sewing needle. Also, there's absolutely no evidence that there was a gate called the eye of a needle. No. Jesus was referring to a literal camel going through a literal hole in a needle. Jesus is using exaggeration to illustrate impossibility. Every culture has vivid metaphors like this. We have one that says, a snowball's chance in hell. What are the chances of a snowball lasting more than two seconds in hell? None, right? No chance. That's what this illustration is. Jesus isn't saying it's difficult or unpleasant or demanding for a rich person to enter the kingdom, he is saying it is humanly impossible. 
A rich man has a snowball's chance in hell of getting to heaven. It's about as, it's about, it's about as possible for a rich person to get to heaven as it is for a camel to jump through the eye of a needle. Not going to happen. Look at the disciples' reaction to this illustration. In verse 26, they state, And they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Let me tell you why they were so flabbergasted. Because the religious leaders of their day were the first prosperity preachers. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were all extremely wealthy. They would tell you that wealth and prosperity were the ultimate sign of God's love, blessing, and salvation. If you were poor, you hoped God loved you. If you were rich, you knew God loved you. And now Jesus comes along and says, it's as impossible for a rich man to go to heaven as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples were like, what? Well, if it's impossible for rich people to be, in, to be saved, who can then be? So we get to number three in your outline, the pivotal point. Verse 27. But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Now remember, the disciples are like, My goodness, if it's true that wealthy people can't be saved, what are the chances that anyone has to be saved? What's the answer? None. No chance. It is left, if left solely to the will and the effort of human beings, it is impossible for anyone to be saved. And here's the point he made many times before, and now he's drilling down. And that is, in your outline, consider A, the letter A, the power of salvation belongs to God. No one can save themselves. No one can be rich enough, good enough, or righteous on their own. It takes a miracle of God for anyone to be saved. It's impossible for man, but it's possible for God. Listen, God must save people, or people cannot be saved. And this isn't meant for anyone to feel hopeless, just the opposite. It's meant for us to put no hope in ourselves and all of our hope in Christ. And the point of the camel through the needle parable is that it is impossible for anyone to earn salvation. What we couldn't do for ourselves, God did it for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he was taking my sin and my failures upon himself. I'm the one that I should have been tortured and crucified. I'm the guilty one with sin. But only the sinless one who ever walked in this planet, he took my place. Then we get to our outline. Consider C. The letter, consider the letter B. The promise of reward comes from God. Verses 29 to 31 states, So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who were first will be last and the last first. 
The the radical call of Christ is to surrender our lives and give up everything to follow him. You know, we're to trust in nothing and in no one else but him. And Jesus will have no divided allegiance. He will have all of us or he will have none of us. If you ever want to know what complete surrender looks like, look at the cross. Jesus held nothing back in order to save us, and we should hold nothing back to follow him. You know, your prayer should be, Lord, I cling to nothing but you for you to save me. I want you over everything else and whatever I need to give or to give up, I consider consider it done. I want you. But Jesus says, what we'll find when we've given up everything to follow him is that he will be with us and take care of us so much that we will find that we have really not given up anything at all. He will supply all of our needs in this life and the life to come. And to the watching world, the rich ruler stood first and the poor disciple stood last. But God saw things from the perspective of eternity and the first became last while the last became first. And those who are first in their own eyes will be last in God's eyes, but those who are last in their own eyes will be rewarded as first. And that should be an encouragement to all true disciples. But let me ask you, do you find yourself wanting to add Jesus to your life, to your wealth, to your hobbies, perhaps to your to-do list? Are you sacrificing everything to follow him? You see, the rich young ruler wanted to add God to his life. And Jesus said, forget it. You have to give up your life to have God. And if you'll give up your life, you'll find that he gives you all you need and more in this life and the life to come. And lastly, consider the letter C in your outline. Salvation isn't hard. It's impossible. Impossible for man, that is. There is nothing we can do and nothing we can give to be saved from our sin and from ourselves. But the good news is that for God, nothing is impossible. Salvation is an impossible miracle that our God specializes in. He tells us, Come with nothing but faith, trusting in the finished work of Christ through his cross and resurrection. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can't do anything because he has already done it. The God of the impossible has done the impossible to you, for you, and for me. He's made a way for us to leave this world forgiven, to escape eternal punishment, and to enjoy him forever and all through the gift of grace. And have you received that incredible gift from the God of the impossible? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Service is over. Take this week and survey your lives. We are not all called to sell our houses and belongings, but we are all called to dedicate them to the service 
of the Lord. Amen. Stay healthy, stay safe. We'll see you next week. Amen.